0: Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35, which is found on page 8 of your bulletin. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're concluding a mini-series this morning on one of the core values of our church, uh, and that's community. One of the hallmarks of Christian community is forgiveness. Anytime you bring up community in the church, you have to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, we tend to think that Forgiveness is a private practice, it's an emotional practice, Um, but the Bible sees it as communal discipline. It's a discipline. Forgiveness is a discipline. It's got everything to do with community. Forgiveness is one of the hallmarks of the faith. Why? I mean, do you get it? Why? Only for the heart that feels absolutely loved by God is forgiveness a call. Otherwise, you're really just morally restraining yourself. You're never going to be long-suffering. Forgiveness is a hallmark. At the end of this parable, what do you see? It seems very harsh, but it's also very realistic, as we read. This gracious king, he forgives the servant, a great debt. But the servant, in turn, uh, he does not become more forgiving. And what happens here is, at the end, he, the servant is not just thrown into jail. The text says he was delivered to the jailers, but the actual, literal Um, definition or meaning here is that he was sent over to be tortured. This gracious king sends him over to be tortured. And Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive from the heart. That's what he says. In other words, forgiveness or an unforgiving heart, it leads to punishment. It leads to torture. It leads to suffering. Eternal suffering, he says. Now, we're saying here, wait. For the past eight months, uh, we've been learning that salvation is not about work. So what, can you, what do you mean by this? Well, what's the meaning? And here's the meaning. What Jesus is saying here is that if you didn't open your heart in mercy to someone who needed it, if you didn't open your heart in mercy to somebody who really, really needed forgiveness, then that proves you didn't open your heart to me. You didn't open your heart to my mercy. Forgiveness, it's a tremendous, tremendous uh, fruit. You know, peace, patience, Kindness, Loving kindness, long-suffering. That's what we said. These are fruits. These are fruits. 1 Corinthians 13, um, Paul writes that long-suffering and kindness, that it's more than just a practice. It's a fruit. It's a fruit of the kingdom. What's a fruit? Fruits reveal that a tree actually has life. If you have two apple trees and uh, one apple tree is bare and the other apple tree has plenty of fruit, you can tell by looking at one tree that this tree is alive, but the other tree is bare. You don't know if it's alive or not. Fruits reveal that a tree has life. So a moral restraint, a life of moral restraint, that's like a bare tree, but you basically take fruit and you staple it onto that tree. What happens? Over time, the fruit starts to rot. The fruit drops back to the ground. You still have a bare tree. There's no life. That's what it's like to to live a life of moral restraint. What's happening? It's bare. When you refuse to forgive, it makes you feel righteous. It makes you feel so wronged and so self-pitying. And that's the opposite of Jesus. What he's saying here is the reason why you feel tortured is that it's the opposite of Jesus. You're actually becoming more like Satan himself. You're accusing. You're stepping on the necks of other people. That's what you're doing. And it leads to an enormous life of suffering. We're going to get into that. But I want to emphasize that here what we're learning is that to not forgive, it's a life or death situation. Spiritually speaking, it's life or death. It's a life or death circumstance. Love is patient. Love is kind. Patience. In the Greek, it's long-suffering. Over the course of years, this passage has uh, shaped me uh, in many ways, and um, there's no one better than, uh, if you want further reference, than Tim Keller himself. I've learned tremendously uh, this passage in particular from, from Tim Keller and what he has had to say over the course of years about forgiveness, and so I want to share some of these things with you, and there's three things we're going to learn. One, uh, it's why, do we, why do we practice patience? What does it mean to say that we are patient? Why is it important to forgive? What it means to forgive and how do you forgive why is it important why is it critical what is it and how do you do it or how do you get it so first we're going to talk about why is it important why is it critical why do we need it and you first have to understand this parable the key to getting this parable the key to understanding this parable is the immense the magnitude of the debt that the servant owed the king this king he was settling accounts with his servants And uh, one of the servants owed him 10,000 talents per year. 10,000 talents, sorry. It's a subjective number. Um, uh, You know, you've got to keep in mind that an ordinary working man or a laborer in those days made one and a half talents, one to one and a half talents a year annually. Uh, This servant owed him 10,000 talents. Uh, A cultural analogy, if you take the average person in America... Um, who makes roughly thirty to forty five thousand dollars a year? The average salary in America is about thirty to forty five thousand dollars a year. Uh, multiply that by ten thousand. What do you get? You get three hundred to four hundred and fifty million dollars. In other words, this, this uh, uh, servant was not the butler. This servant was not uh, the, the maid, the household maid. He was most likely a ruler over a city. Or a region or a province or maybe even a small country under this king. And either through mismanagement or through corruption, somehow this person, this servant, squandered all of the money. He might have, either through embezzlement or some sort of mismanagement, he squandered an enormous amount of money. And it was disastrous. It had a disastrous effect on the king. You know, in those days, they had no public treasury. There was no such thing as a treasury. So when Jesus pulls out a coin... And he says, whose is this? Whose is this coin? The coin literally had a picture of Caesar on it. They said, it's Caesar's, it belongs to Caesar. And they were actually literally correct. It was Caesar's coin. The gold belonged to, coin, uh, to, to Caesar. The money actually, he, used, he dispensed his own money, sent it out to the provinces, basically to either repair roads or for the military or to make improvements in the region. It was his money. And Jesus uses a, a, a sum that's so large, so incredibly large, that even if the, you were the emperor of Rome, the king, the kingship would have been in trouble. It would have impacted the kingdom. And in spite of the fact that it put the kingdom in jeopardy, the king doesn't lose his composure. He doesn't lose his composure. The servant begs him. You know, he was gonna send the servant and his family basically off and his servant implores, it says. It begs him, be patient. Verse 26, be patient. What does that mean? What does it mean to be patient? The Greek word, makrothumia, what does it mean to be patient? It's a compound word. Macro meaning large or long. Thumia, meaning heat. Temperament. To be long-tempered. To be, long, to be able to withstand the long heat. To be... Uh, to be long-suffering, and it brings us to this metaphor. Uh, Keller himself uh, developed this metaphor, and I thought it was unbelievable here. Mercury at room temperature runs all over the place. It's out of control. Most metals metals, um, can withstand a considerable amount of heat before ultimately what happens? It runs all over the place. Um, So depending on the kind of heat and depending on the type of metal, um, you either be able to keep it, keep your composure, or you run all over the place. And that's what he's saying here: um, spiritual patience is that inner power to be able to uh, bear heat, to be able to bear injury without losing composure, without meltdown. Things are going to happen to you, um, but they don't destroy you. Things uh, things are going to happen to you, but they don't destroy your inner poise. They don't destroy your inner joy. They don't control you. In other words. In other words, it doesn't, you're not being made, you're you're not being shaped by what happens to you, by what's being done to you. You don't melt down. That's what it means to be patient. Why is it important? Why is that important? In Luke chapter 21, verse 19, it says, by your endurance, by your patience, same word, you will gain your lives. By your patience, you will gain your lives. You will find yourself. That's what it says. To suffer is to be a victim. To suffer is to be a victim. You don't have to do anything to suffer, right? Um, a lot of times it happens outside of your choice. Um, it happens to you. But to be long-suffering, to be patient is what. That's a choice. It's a bold, deliberate it's a bold, deliberate choice to bear injuries without melting down, without, without losing your composure, without running all over the place. In other words, it's a complex choice. On one hand, you have to accept the suffering. You're deliberately accepting the suffering. You're deliberately accepting the injuries. It's a choice. But on the other hand, you're not bearing them in a way that's going to make you fall apart. That's going to make you destroy, to become destroyed. It's going to. It's not going to. Uh, uh, you're not making that choice in a way where it's changing you and passing into you on the inside. That's what it is. To be long suffering is to be bold. It's to be active. You're taking your life back. That's what Luke chapter twenty one verse like. nine. In patience, you you're possessing your souls. That's the old King James version. You're possessing your souls. You're taking your life back. It's a way to freedom. In a world where suffering is a law, there's no more important quality, there's no more important trait than to bear injuries without melting down. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable character. And in this passage, we see a particular act. We see a particular aspect of suffering. Long-suffering. It's an inner power to bear the mistreatment that we endure sometimes from other people without melting down, without losing our composure, without falling into resentment. How do we do that? Having a forgiving spirit without losing inner poise. Otherwise, what's happening is you're letting the anger that you have pass into you into you to reside in you to have a to, to bear a root inside you now some of you are saying well that's not really a problem for me i'm pretty well known to be a forgiving person i'm pretty i'm a pretty easygoing guy i don't really need uh to to really consider these things kind of things i've always been known as a as a very kind person um i don't i never hold grudges really don't be so sure in hebrews chapter 12 the author warns see to it brothers see to it that no root of bitterness Springs up inside you That's what the author writes In another translation Take care Lest you harbor A root of bitterness Why? It's an interesting metaphor and Anger Is a root That's what the author Is saying here Anger is root You say you go outside Of your house Or your apartment There's a tree Blocking a certain area You want to you get rid of the tree What do you do? You start out You shave off the branches Then you chop the tree down up until it, you reduce it to a stump and you get rid of the stump a while later the tree goes back it starts to grow back you start to see visible manifestations of the tree again why? because you haven't uprooted the tree the roots are still there there's a whole system going on underneath and you haven't uprooted it anger is depicted as this kind of a root in other words it's possible to admit it's, it's possible to be able to admit uh, uh, anxiety It's possible to admit lust. But it's very, very difficult at times to admit anger. Why is that? It's because we often minimize it. We so often minimize how angry we really are. And it's very, very difficult to see the anger. Other people sometimes see your anger. It's a lot easier for other people to see the anger. They see it through your grumbling. They see it through your complaining. And it's momentary. It's sharp. It's through a look. But the thing is, it's so difficult for us. We often minimize it. We are often blind to it because anger itself is subterranean. It's under the skin. It's deep inside. It resides deep inside our heart. It affects us. And we don't realize what it's really doing to us until it's passed into us and it's shaped us and changed us on the outside. It affects how we interact with community. It, happens, it affects how we interact with other people. We minimize how often, how it really affects us. How it inwardly directs us. How we've become selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed and self-righteous because of our anger. You know, we say, yeah, I've been angry at people, I've been, I've been angry at somebody. We often say, you know, take somebody like your parents. Oh, I've been angry at my parents, um, but that's not really affected how I interact with other people. Really? We so often minimize when somebody really hurts us. And unless, the Bible's saying here that unless there's a great act of forgiveness, that anger is gonna come into you, it's gonna pass into you, it's gonna twist you, it's gonna inflict what Tim Keller says is a low-grade fever of self-pity. I love that phrase, a low-grade fever of self-pity that resides in us. We say, I'm over it, I'm over it, it's okay, take care. Lest you harbor a root of bitterness. It's gonna twist you. It's gonna reclude you. It's gonna control you. Now, it's easy to dismiss people who've hurt us. It's easy to to, uh, write people off. We say, I'm over with it. I'm done with them. Uh, But you're not really done. It's not that easy. It's not really over. The anger has now passed into you, it's made you cynical, it's made you hard. It's filled you with prejudices and biases that you don't really even realize you've been blind to because so much time has passed at times. Look at the way this parable ends. The king comes and he says, You're a wicked servant. He says, You're a wicked servant. You're not grateful. You are not forgiving. You don't understand my mercy. That's what he says. And I'm going to send you off and you're going to be tortured. The king's a great man, he's a good man, he's patient. But he orders this person to be tortured to the jailers. Why? Why does he do that? If you don't learn to forgive, this is what Jesus is saying. If you don't learn to forgive, the anger is going to pass into you. It's subterranean. It's going to reside there, create a root, and you're going to feel like you're in prison. You're in prison. Your prison becomes your life. That's what happens. You're going to become tortured. It's going to punish you. That prison, it's going to torture. You're going to feel punished. You're going to be tortured by the anger. You're not going to live a free life. You're going to be suffering. You're always going to be reeling. You're always going to be distrusting. You're always going to be self-protecting. And you're going to live your life compensating for the torture over and over and over again, compensating for the suffering like an animal, like an animal in a cage. And that's why it's important. That's why it's important. That's why we need it. That's why we need to forgive. Now, second, what is it? There are three things that this king does. Three amazing things, a gracious king that he does. He does. Um, And uh, mainly what we're saying here is that um, uh, it's not just in the big things. In this situation, you see the big things, but it's in all things. Lest we harbor a root of bitterness. It's in all things. Every wrongdoing. Three quick things. He was moved to pity. He canceled the debt. That's the third thing. It's mentioned here, but he cancels the debt and he lets him go. He's moved to pity. He cancels the debt. He lets the person go. First, he moved to pity. He's moved to pity, verse 27. He felt tremendous compassion toward the misery of the other person, towards the misery of this servant. Tremendous compassion. Whenever someone wrongs you, it's very natural, it's automatic to look at the other person. It could be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be a a person you feel betrayed by, somebody you have resentment towards. It's very natural to emphasize the, the... The differences that you have with this person, very natural, but if you really want to grow inner poise, if you really want to grow in long-suffering, you have to make a deliberate decision. You have to be moved to make a deliberate decision to emphasize the commonalities that you have with this person. That's number one. Whenever someone wrongs you, it's very easy to make caricatures of that person. You know what a caricature is? A caricature is an image of that person where you take a, a sharp a flaw of that person and you blow it out of proportion. You augment it to a point where nobody can mistake that that feature is a flaw in that person. So when someone lies, they're only liars. If someone cheats, that person, he's only a cheater. You're augmenting the flaw of that person. Now, when you lie, oh, it's very complex. You know why? It's very complex. It depends on the circumstance. I mean, if you really understood what I'm going through, you can't really say it's really a lie. Uh, You know why you do that? You know why we justify that in ourselves? It's because uh, we view ourselves, our lives, in three dimensions, but we tend to view other people always in one dimension. So it's very easy to look at yourself and say, well, I mean, it's really a lie. If you look at my circumstance, if you really understand where I'm at, you know, I'm, 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 it's really a lie. But when other people, they're liars. They're cheaters. It's very direct. Uh, very, very much so. So that's one thing. Why do we do that? It's because deep inside, every human soul, we're afraid of not being valuable. We're afraid of not being worthy There's this deep fear And it creates a desperate need To always justify ourselves This is at the heart of racism This is at the heart of workaholism This is at the heart of alcoholism This is why we don't consider Some of us here don't consider Certain people To become uh, spouses or wives or husbands Because of how they look or, Or what their salary Or their income statement says It's because there's this desperate need To feel worthy To be valuable To be known And so we tend to augment the not-so-good flaws, features of other people, and we tend to justify our own. We say, I would never do that. I would never do that. We're emphasizing the differences. It makes us feel better. That's why. It makes us feel better. But if you don't want your heart to be melted down by anger, you have to rediscover the commonalities, the common humanity that you share with this person. In other words, what you're saying is, well, I'm fallible, I'm confused, uh, I'm a mixture of uh, some good qualities and mostly bad qualities, you know, I'm very, very weak, and that person uh, is often confused, is fallible, a mixture of uh, good qualities and bad qualities, a weak person, you have to see them as common to you. We're fallen creatures, we're all fallen creatures, but we're redeemable creatures. God has made a way. We're redeemable creatures. And that's going to make us freer. That should make us freer. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he cancels the debt. Verse 27 again. He cancels the debt. Um, and uh, he doesn't take revenge. He doesn't exact payment. He doesn't uh, make the servant uh, pay back the debt. In other words, we have to uh, not make the person, the other person who's wronged this, pay this debt of emotional pain that's been built up in us. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that if you've been wronged in a legally punishable manner that you don't bring the person to justice. That's not what this means. Okay? But what it means is that um, when somebody wrongs you, it creates, there's this emotional debt of pain that's been created. And uh, there's a sense of obligation that that person owes us. We all, anybody who's been wronged understands that. An apology is not enough. Somebody's got to pay. The pain doesn't just go away. Time, we say time heals. Really, does time heal? Time doesn't just heal. Time buries the pain. And at some point, it resurfaces. And there's this root of bitterness that grows and springs up, it says. Now, there's all sorts of ways to make people pay, pay, pay you back. There's all sorts of ways to do that. And they're usually subsets of, on one hand, retaliation, Some of us go the retaliation pathway, and there's many ways. I've started making a list of many things that we could do, or the other way is by withdrawing, by writing them off. And they're really two means to the same end. What you're doing is you're making the person pay the debt down. There's a direct way of doing it, retaliatory way of doing it. You insult them. You know, um, that's one way of paying them back. But there's also indirect ways of doing it. You withdraw from them. You gossip about them. You slander them. You ruin their reputation in private. These are ways that we do it. You know? Or there's another way to do it. In your, in your re, uh, removing of yourself from that person, your breaking of a relationship, what you're really saying is, you know, you're beneath me. I'm not even going to stoop to that level. I'm not going to pay you back in that way. I'm not going to stoop to that level of, of wickedness. I wanna, but I want to see that person suffer. I want to hear about that person when they're suffering. You know what you're doing? You're paying. You're making them pay down the debt. You're making, and you want By seeing them pay You're making them pay down the debt And slowly You know what happens Slowly little by little You feel less and less Of pain of debt You start to feel better For a little while It does feel better But what's happening here Is the anger is passing into you The anger is rooting into you And the heat sweeps you along And it's melting you Into its likeness That's what's happening And if you make other people Pay that debt You are changing You are changing, and that anger is starting to control you. I remember this story about a person that I knew personally and that I was counseling who was hurt deeply in the church that they were at. They were hurt deeply in the church that they were at. The church um, had oppressive leaders, and they were kind of abusive in a way, in a subtle way, uh, in a pressuring way, very, very abusive, and they felt such a compulsion always to have to do things in the church really just out of fear and guilt, They were guilted into doing everything and and, and fear of of being disciplined in some uh, cultural way, I guess, within that church. And they had a horrible experience. And they've been there for years, but eventually they left that church. And that's how we kind of came to know each other um, because they were at our church and we were serving together. And I noticed this person tremendously gifted as a musician. Unbelievable. They were a concert musician. And, um, but they all, whenever they were asked by the church leaders to do something, um, you know, either during a special event or, you know, they were invited to kind of be a part of a, of a choir or something like that, they always refused. Very gentle about it, very very pleasant about it, but they always refused. And I, and I saw that uh, over the course of years, and finally we went out to dinner one night And we were talking. They were sharing their experience with me, uh, uh, horrible experiences in the church. Um, And uh, as I was talking to them, um, you know, I said, is this the reason why um, you kind of reserve yourself from really taking an active role uh, as a musician? And they said, well, you know, and they they started kind of going off, you know, that's the start. But I'm over with that now. I'm done with that now. But really what's happened is, you know, I realized that these kind of skill sets don't really fit well in the church. Um, you know, the church doesn't always attract the most skilled musicians and, you know, it's because everything's always played in, in the chords of D, C, and G and uh, that's a little boring for true musicians. Um, but also, um, uh, I've realized I can bless other people in ch- uh, that are outside the church and kind of draw them in. I'm kind of doing my own work in my personal ministry. And those are all really, really good reasons. But what's happened? The anger has passed in. And over time, it's buried it. And it is now it's resulted in this form of fear, a desire not to connect. And you know what you're doing? You know what's going on? You're still punishing people long after you've left. This person's still punishing people long after they've left. They're still being controlled by the experience. I said, you know, I'm never gonna serve in that way ever again. I'm never gonna do that. My pastor made me play every week and when I, even when I had finals, even when I was under emotional duress, when I was broken, when I was not spiritually doing well and I wanted to take a break, every week, every week, every week, I was in fear and I was in guilt and, and, and it pressured me and I'll never do that again. You know what you're doing? The root of bitterness taking hold. It sprung up. It sprung up. You're, not thinking about, you're not really thinking about whether or not it's good for you, whether or not it will be good for other people. You're just thinking about how to beat that. How to beat that. And in reality, you know what's happening? You're getting beaten. You've already been beaten. That's what's happening. You've already lost. The anger's passed into you. You see that? You see that? You know, you, th- you think that the only way to avoid that kind of pain again is to just, it's just cut people off altogether in that way and in, as a result, you're losing. And you never want to admit it. We never want to admit it when we make other people pay but what's happening is we're becoming like the evil in many ways. We feel better. We feel safer. But it's changing you. It's eating you away. That's what's happening. Remember the book Hamlet? Um, one of my favorite books, probably my second favorite book in all of literature that I've read. Um, what's happening? Hamlet has been wronged. Um, His father was murdered By a very very His uncle Claudius And he's harbored This root of bitterness That's actually how The first act opens up And the anger is passed into him What happens Little by little One by one Everybody that Hamlet Gets in contact with Shakespeare is trying to show us An amazing thing here That anger as it passes into us Starts to destroy Our community around us One by one Gertrude dies Polonius dies Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are dead Um, Ophelia, his love Punished and tortured internally Dead Until eventually It consumes Hamlet himself Remember that? It controls him It makes him look crazy sometimes It makes him look funny sometimes It makes him look reflective And contemplative sometimes Sometimes it results in self-pity He says to be or not to be That is the question, right? It makes him look into self-pity Until finally He's utterly consumed Now the other option Is to cancel the debt The king Gracious king Cancels the debt It didn't just vanish into thin air It's still there The debt's still there The the pain is still there $450 million lost The king had to eat the cost He he couldn't just ignore it You know If you you just ignore it then Then the evil's gonna pass into you You're gonna feel resentment And bitterness all the way through You must pay it down You have to pay the debt down. How do you pay the debt down? You know what that means? How do we pay the debt down? You know what that means? Every time you want to rub somebody's nose into it. Every time you want to turn your face away from that person. Every single time you want to just, you know, if I could just somehow figure out a new way to be cold, a new innovative way to be cold to this person. Another way uh, to just run them down. If I could just find a way to gossip about this person, you know, tell the truth. I'm telling the truth about this person. I have to warn people. I have to protect people from these people. You're making them pay. You're making them pay. It's costly. It's costly to not take revenge. Do you see that? It's costly to do that because you are paying it down. You are paying it down. If you make them pay, it's going to shape you or it's going to misshape you. Um, and you're going to pay anyways, somebody's got to pay. But on the other hand, if you refuse to bring the matter up, if you refuse to take revenge, if you refuse to retaliate, if you refuse to withdraw from the person, it's very intriguing because it hurts you, and it hurts you deeply. It's commensurate with the level of pain that you've experienced. But what happens is the anger actually starts to go away over time. Now, it's dependent on the size of the wrong. Sometimes it could take weeks or days or moments. It could take months, sometimes years. But eventually, the anger will go away. It goes down and it goes away, and you'll be free because it hasn't shaped you or misshaped you. It hasn't passed into you. Now, you see the flip side here. Jesus, the whole point of a parable is to shock the people at that time who are listening. And here's Jesus telling this parable the disciples were asking him about forgiveness and he's teaching them through this parable and it's no doubt that they were shocked by this grace, the grace of this king there's absolutely no doubt that they were shocked by the grace of the king but what happens at the end? what happens? you know um, this servant on his way out sees another servant who owes him only a few dollars and what does he do? What is, his response is completely over the top He doesn't just say you better pay me back you know pay me give me my two dollars that's not what he says he says what he chokes him he starts out he begins to choke the person and then he throws him in jail completely over the top why because this person is vile this person is wicked this person the anger is so passed into him he doesn't understand forgiveness The anger is so passed into it, so misshaped, and it's become just utterly ludicrous. He's violent. He's used to abusing people. And and the servants, verses 28 to 30, they were gravely, they see this, your anger, the misshaping quality of your character is visible. It's visible. And they report this to the king. It's an amazing thing that's going on here. A lot of times we say, um, you know, well, you know, doesn't this good king, if he's really gracious, doesn't he care about truth? I mean, what about truth here? What about the justice? There's a tremendous, this person's not going to, uh, you know, there's no justice here. How does this m- make the king good, you know? And um, again, we don't really know if it was through mismanagement or corruption. We don't really know what the reasons were. But this king has tremendous compassion, he cancels the debt, he lets the man go. And, um, and it, it, that's an amazing thing because what we're seeing here is um, you're not pitting, he, it, it's, this passage is teaching us not to pit um, the confrontational nature of the king you know, with the forgiving nature of the king. It's teaching us not to pit the forgiveness of the king With the justice of the king You don't put the two together Why is that? If I don't personally forgive somebody This passage is telling us You're never going to get justice We say, you know Doesn't this king care about justice? If you don't personally forgive You're never going to get justice Why? If you don't Number one If I just try to confront this person If I just go after this person without first forgiving the person deeply from the heart, or if I withdraw from this person without first forgiving deeply from the heart, without forgiving them, then the anger is going to go into you. We said that. And, um, you know, if, if you don't protect yourself from that anger, the anger is going to go in, and you're not going to seek justice. You're just going to seek retribution. And that's going to be visible. No one's going to listen to you. Everyone's going to see that that is unjust. It's equally unjust. The king has to let this person go. He says, "I'm going to let this person go." He, the reason why he's a gracious king is not just because of the act, but he doesn't want the anger to overtake him. In patience, in endurance, he's claiming himself. He's free, and in that freedom, he can pursue true justice. Well, we know what happens with this other servant. Um, he's not able to let the other person go. <laughs> And uh, he's, he's thrown into jail to be tortured. And we said, because the anger has so deeply consumed him, he's suffering and torturing. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us. And he's saying, You have to be, com- I am, the king is all compassionate. The king, he cancels the dead, he lets them go. That's why we have to let them go. That's what he does. If you practice the first two, if you're able to, to cancel the dead, if you're, able to, if you're moved with pity, you're able to let them go. How do you do this? How do you practice this? There's no doubt that the disciples, the people around Jesus, were surprised by this king's inner composure. There's absolutely no doubt. But it's, inc- you know, what, what do we see here? The king, you know, he's, he's taking pity on the servant. And the average listener is listening to this in those days, just like we do in our day. That is impossible to say. What kind of a king would do that? What kind of a true king in, in, a, in a real life story, what kind of a true king would really do that? And Jesus is saying here, A king like that exists. A king like that truly exists. It's incredibly ludicrous for this servant to condemn this other servant and act like a judge. It's incredibly ludicrous for this servant to stand over this other servant and act like his king. It's ludicrous. That's what Jesus is showing us. We look at that, it's easy to tell. Jesus is holding up a mirror for all of us. And he's saying, This is us. This is you. We're all servants trying to act like a king. We're all all condemned people trying to act like a judge. We're all servants trying to act like a king. But that's the purpose of this, uh, this parable. He's saying, Don't be a condemned person acting like a judge. Don't be a servant acting like a king. And how do you do that? You have to first behold the king, the true king, who's become a servant for us. You have to behold the true king who's become a true servant for us. Jesus, he looked at us. Not that we might cost him glory. Not that one day maybe we'll cost him glory, but because we did cost him his full glory. Jesus came to us, Not to choke us because of our debt, not to turn away from us because of our debt. That's not what he did, but to be strangled by the wrath of God on the cross. That's what. That's exactly why he came. In fact, God himself turned his face away from Jesus. Why? Because of our debt. Jesus came, not to arrest us, but to be arrested. Not to torture, but to be tortured. All the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. And his work, when he was on the cross, his last words, the culmination of his incredible work on the cross was what? He uttered a word to tell us die. In those days, it was a financial transactional term. What he was saying there was what? The debt is paid. I have paid it. It is finished. It is paid. And what this passage is teaching us, Jesus is telling us a story. Why? Because He doesn't want us to take take the story and walk away and say, now go be like this uh, king. That's not what he's saying. In order to become a king, as a servant, you have to become you have to behold the ultimate king who has become a servant for us. There's a debt that has to be paid. And Jesus paid it. He paid it all. There's a debt that's paid, and Jesus paid it. You have trouble with your spouse, trouble with your children. Trouble with your employer or your employee or your coworker you trouble with the person sitting right next to you he 's saying the only way Jesus is saying the only way that I can be reconciled to this person that I love, my bride, my church, the only way that I can be reconciled is to be forsaken and i 've paid that debt. It is finished that 's what he said there 's a debt to be paid. we have problems with our parents we have problems with our with our families, problems with our children we say problems with our siblings. The only way that we can be completely healed is to behold the king, the ultimate king who was forsaken by his parents. The wrath of his father was placed on him. Why? So that we could be absolved of his wrath. Let that sink into you. Let that truth sink into you. This is huge. The biggest betrayal, the biggest betrayal in those times was father to son or son to father. But the Bible, we know that God loved his son. God utterly loved his son, and the son utterly loved his father, and yet the Trinity on the cross was ripped apart as God had forsaken his son. Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has become sin for our sake. He paid down the infinite debt. So that we could be free Jesus suffered the arrest He suffered the tortures. He suffered the jailer He suffered the cross Why? So that we would not have to suffer The ultimate wrath The infinite We would not have to pay back The infinite debt That we owe to God And that's going to melt your heart You have to take that truth Plant it deep inside You have to melt let that, You have to plant it deep inside Until it melts you Until the point where you can become poised In the midst of heat Do you see that? Do you understand what I'm saying there? You have to take the truth of the gospel And plant it in if you remain hard, it hasn't gone deep enough. You have to plant it in deeper until you reap. The result is long suffering, patience, poise, composure. That's you got to you got to let the gospel melt your heart. Colossians chapter three, verse twelve. Colossians chapter three, verse twelve. It's a story about love. As God's people, holy and dearly loved as God's people holy and dearly loved, he says, clothe yourselves with patience. Clothe yourselves with the likeness of Christ. Long-suffering, clothe yourself with it. Imagine a big fur coat covering you. Let it drape over you. Be patient. Not to be loved. He doesn't say, as God's people, be patient so that you would be holy and dearly loved. That's not what he says. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, as God's people who are declared holy, who are dearly loved, now you can become patient because you've beheld the ultimate patience of the king for your sake. No more debt. Stop being a servant acting like a king. Behold the king, the ultimate king, who became a servant and paid the ultimate debt for you. Now, we're coming for the table. Some of us here, we don't feel forgiven by somebody else. There are people here, inevitably, who don't feel forgiven. And we bear that, we bore that burden for a long time. Some of us, we say we have not yet forgiven somebody else. And we bear, you know, in many ways, it's subterranean. Maybe it's passed into us and been buried, but the thing is we bear it. And it shows up. It peeks itself out in very random ways, maybe Some of us don't remember enough that we've been forgiven by the Father, by our King. The ultimate King has forgiven us. And as we come to the table, what's the table here? The table is an opportunity for us to remember again, whether you partake of the table today or not. It's an opportunity for us to recall and remember because all throughout the Bible, we pray to the Father, we say, remember not our sins, but most of the time, or actually all the time, when God calls us to remember, He says, Remember your Creator who has redeemed you. Remember that you're forgiven. The king has become the ultimate servant. He has paid the ultimate debt for us. You have to take that truth. When we partake of the table today, we there's a reason why Jesus instituted it as a meal. The reason why it's a meal is because, number one, a meal taken in the context of community is meant to be tremendous. It's supposed to be very intimate. Only the most intimate of friends did that. And that's why in Catholic services, the table is up here, the priest is here, and the people are there because the priest is the conduit. But in a Protestant service, the table sits between the pastor and uh, the, the person who's dispensing the elements and the people. Why? because it's meant to be a circle, a community. And the center of the table is the broken body and blood of Christ. And it's meant to be eaten. In other words, you have to take it in. You have to digest it. It has to go in. And what happens when you digest a good meal? It works itself into you. A truly good meal is one that's nourishing you. Let's recall the gospel today. Let's take it in and let
0: it work in us and let it nourish us.
1: Will you join me today in doing so? Let's pray.